Welcome to the Queen of the Sciences podcast, conversations between a theologian and her dad. I'm your host, Sarah Henlicky wilson And I am Paul R. Henlicky. Today on the show, Dad and I are beginning a two-parter on the Gospel of Luke. So way back when, in our first year, we did a two-parter on the Gospel of Mark. And then last year, our third year, we did a two-parter on the Gospel of John. So we thought, well... Let's do Luke this year. And Dad even pointed out that this year is the Luke lectionary year. And listeners, you know how much I love the lectionary. But I said, all right, (laughs) why not? Luke's not such a bad guy. And this almost certainly means we'll get around to Matthew next year. But here we are with Luke, which everybody loves because it contains Christmas. Right, Dad? Right. Uh, It's uh, one scholar, um, not a, a, a biblical scholar by trade, but a ancient uh, 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 Hellenistic civilization kind of scholar that I read described the Gospel of Luke as the most beautiful piece of literature to be found in Greco-Roman civilization. And I think there's some truth in that, that it's just an elegantly written and very moving narrative uh, on the literary level including, of course, the charming beginning with the nativity stories, which juxtapose Mary and Zechariah, the birth of John and the birth of Jesus. It's striking that he made that judgment about all of Greek literature. I mean, wow, that's that's quite a compliment. I mean, I I know I'm no great Greek scholar myself, but I know that um, Mark is kind of clunky and often has grammatical errors, and Luke is extremely elegant and has a vast vocabulary by comparison, even by comparison to John, which is also elegantly written, but not nearly as as wide-reaching in its uh, vocabulary. Absolutely true. Now you're going to undoubtedly want me to find out the source of that quotation for the notes (laughs) to the show, and I'm not promising that I can uh, rediscover where I read that, but I did read it. Okay. Dear Theophilus, some scholar somewhere assures us that Luke has written you a beautiful gospel. How about that? <laughs> sure. Sounds All right. good well, to me. Speaking of Theophilus, I think where we'll start today is there is a longstanding discussion of who exactly Luke was. Now, you know, Chances are his name was not Luke. The reason he's called Luke is because of an axe. There is a physician who comes on the scene and suddenly starts writing in the voice of we about Paul and the others, including himself. And he's said to be a physician. And so because Luke and Acts are very clearly written by the same person, um, that's why we give him the name. Actually, probably of the four Gospels, this is our, our most likely accurate name of the four. The other three are less likely to be accurate. But the big question has always been whether or not Luke himself was a Jew or a Gentile. And the kind of common wisdom for low many a century has been that Luke must have been a Gentile. And the reason why is because the story of Luke Acts goes farther and farther afield from the home territory of Galilee and Judea and Jerusalem, of course, outward towards the Gentiles is very focused on the Gentile mission. And the story ends in Rome, as we discussed in our Acts episodes. Uh, Dad, what do you think about that? What is your your feeling Well, you know, I think one of the dangers of stereotyping people, was he a Gentile or a Jew, is that you don't allow uh, for all sorts of 
interesting cross-fertilizations and hybridizations that could have occurred. Um, you know, you, you mentioned dear Theophilus, dear friend of God, which is, you know, such an obvious literary device that Luke prefaces the gospel, uh, the gospel with this uh, preface to Theophilus, friend of God. And to me, that kind of indicates a certain uh, social location that we do know about, that in the diaspora, in the Greek-speaking diaspora, there were many Gentiles who were converted religiously to Judaism, but held back from full conversion because of the rigors of circumcision and, and the commitment to keep kosher and, and so forth and so on. So these God-fearers, as they were called, were attached to the synagogue as Gentile semi-members, uh, and uh, not full members because they weren't circumcised, but, but friends of the synagogue. And I, I think that's kind of the milieu which produces the Gospel of Luke. Uh, so whether Luke himself was Gentile or Jew kind of forces a, a choice on us that I don't think is absolutely necessary. I think uh, that the author of this gospel was most likely um, uh, someone in the Hellenistic uh, Greco-Roman civilization, but ethnically, was he a Jew or was he a God-fearer? And what would be the big difference, I guess? That would be my question. Well, I, I um, you know, came into Luke ages ago with the assumption that he was a Gentile because that's what I already he always heard. But when I was in seminary, I took a class on Luke with Don Jewell, which uh, listeners have heard me, uh, whom li listeners have heard me praise before. Um, you, you never knew you could get the bondage of the will by Martin Luther out of the Gospel of Luke until you heard Don Jewell do it. But he did. <laughs> and that that uh, <laughs> that really opened my eyes and made me love Luke. But um it was through him that I suddenly began to see that Luke and is an intensely Jewish story and that the whole story opens in Jerusalem, in the temple, and Zechariah is a good priest and a pious man, and Mary does all the proper observances, when, like when they bring Jesus to the temple to make the proper sacrifices when he's circumcised on the eighth day. And the story ends with all of the disciples at the temple praising God, and that's where they get the holy uh, the spirit you know is, is in, in there staying in Jerusalem and praising God at the beginning of Acts and just all these ways in which um, he just pointed out to me this story is both impossible and unintelligible without a very very deep and sophisticated knowledge of of uh, Judaism at the time now there are some issues that push back against that. For example, Luke drops all of the Hebrew and Aramaic terms that Mark and Matthew use, except for the word amen, which seems to be then as now an, an international word that you don't, that is not restricted only to religious people. And um, he seems to be sometimes wrong about the geography of ancient Palestine, um, things like that. But I, I have to say, as I you know was was weighing this and reading a commentary and reflecting on it, it seems to me 
what you uh, what I would do, I guess, is take the cue from the Pentecost story in which Jews from all the different nations are on pilgrimage back to Jerusalem. But the whole point is that they don't understand Hebrew or Aramaic anymore. They do not speak the local language. They are so fully a part of the cultures that they've moved to, which could be, for example, Alexandria or Rome or somewhere farther east, um, that the miracle is that they can understand what Peter, the local Galilean, is saying. Um, um, you know, in in the version of Aramaic that he would have spoken. So it seems to me that you could be a very good and devout and well-educated Jew and only have the Septuagint, only have Greek and excellent Greek at that, have a deep knowledge of the religion without necessarily having the particular form of it that existed in the land of Israel at the time. Well, I think, you know, since neither of us can make a definite conclusion, Jew or Gentile, I think what really is significant is that both of our takes on this issue, locate the Gospel of Luke in diaspora Judaism slash early early, uh, Christianity before the decisive schism between Judaism and Christianity towards the end of the first century. Yes, that seems that seems entirely fair and accurate. And I guess then this would, like you you said so nicely, that avoiding the hard false choice. I think one way to read Luke, if you're reading him as a Gentile, is trying to, or as a Gentile reader, and assuming that Luke is a Gentile, is trying to say, hey, this gospel is for us. He actually cared about us, you know, and he's putting distance between us, the good new Gentile church, and the, you know, old bad Jewish synagogue. And certainly it's way too easy now for us to pick up this story and read off the surface, bad Jews, good Gentile Christians. But um, the historical circumstances in which this was written were much, much more entangled than that. There is probably not yet the decisive break between church and synagogue that we saw in the Gospel of John. And it is after the destruction of the temple, which means that everybody is an upset and nobody knows quite where they are anymore or where the boundaries lie. And also, I think it's really important to read this remembering that at the time, believers in Jesus were the minority, both in terms of numbers and in terms of power. And so to read it now with our massive power switch after, well, at least 2,000 years, but probably like more like 18 or 1,700 years already is really to misread the import. So it, it, it we have to be, I, I mean, I do this constantly when I'm, I'm teaching Bible study or preaching is to say, you can't read off the surface of this, the circumstance that it is today. It is such a different power dynamic. But I think that also means not to um not to get uh so one interpreter that i read was particularly concerned that luke is already beginning a supersessionist process of of looking down upon jews and making them uh bad but i think that I don't know. I don't see that my, myself. I can see absolutely how people would read it that way now and for a long time, but I don't think that's Luke's intention. So I guess that means, Dad, we should talk about is Luke Acts supersessionist uh, intentionally, un- unintentionally, or not at all? Well, it, you know, again, it depends on what you mean by supersessionism. Um, does the Gospel of Luke uh, locate the critique of the temple uh, within Judaism, certainly does already with the preaching of John the Baptist. Um, and um, is Jesus' uh, fate in Jerusalem 
uh, are the hands of the um, high priest and his party in the Sanhedrin? Are these the ones that are responsible for turning Jesus over to Pilate for execution? Yes, but again, it's the temple authorities uh, that are particularly being uh, singled out here. I think you, you observed to me earlier that while there's conflict with the Pharisees early on in the Gospel of Luke, the Pharisees disappear from the scene by the time we get to Jerusalem. And there Jesus's conflict is uh, with the temple authorities. Um, so has the temple been superseded? Well, it's been superseded for Judaism as well as for Christianity. So this is I'm, the, the formation of normative Judaism at the end of the first century was in direct response to the what was perceived by Jews as the judgment of God on the corrupt uh, temple uh, establishment. Uh, and now the realization that without the physical uh, place of Zion and the temple, Judaism would have to survive uh, in diaspora. Uh, so I, I don't see supersessionism where um, the Christian conflict uh, was with the temple and the emergence of normative Judaism was also in response to the Roman destruction of the temple. Yeah, I think that's really important. I was so struck by that discovery that the Pharisees are are a Galilean problem that Jesus has, but not a Judean one, not a Jerusalem one, that they, for all of our, you know, again, popular Christian talk that the Pharisees are the big bad guy of the story. For Luke, they are not the big bad guy. And the, the arguments that Jesus has with them are very much internal to Jewish interpretation of, of Torah. It's not... Um, it's it's not already like the Pharisees are the rabbis and Jesus is the beginning of the Christian church, but that this is all insider talk. And and then in Judea, the, the conflict is really with some of the temple authorities, not with all of them. And I, I just don't think we can state often enough the fault line in the New Testament between before and after the destruction of the temple. All of Paul's letters are before and nearly everything else, I think, is after. So it's, you know... Even that, actually, I was just thinking this. Let me put it to you. You know, Paul has such an apocalyptic vision, and yet for him, the temple is still standing. It's still an option to go there and worship, and he does in the book of Acts. Um, and, you know, he he we know that he travels back to Jerusalem with the, the collection for the poor Judeans. But Luke, who's often accused of, of being the, uh, you know, the... Um, Build, build bigger barns <laughs> and early Catholicism while you're at it for a, a much more this-worldly take on salvation. He's the one who's writing along with the other evangelists in the wake of everything that's normal being being mowed under by the Roman soldiers. So uh, I, I don't know. That's To me, that's a very provocative difference or fault line within the New Testament literature. I, 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 clearly, it's watershed. It's the watershed that historically catalyzes both the formations of early Catholicism and of normative Judaism, no question about it. And I think we have to locate Luke in this great spiritual turmoil that occurs after 70, uh, the year 70 
in the first century when the Romans have sacked Jerusalem and torn down the temple. Okay, well, there's just um, two more things I want to note with regard to Luke as an interpreter of of both Judaism and what's becoming Christianity. Um, Again, to correct our almost... um, instinctive anti-Judaic bias that we bring to reading the New Testament. Um, The first is that um, Christians don't get purity laws at all. (laughs) And this has become more and more clear to me. I read this really good book recently. I'm going to have to, again, sorry, listeners, I'm going to have to think of the title, but it's basically about about Jesus uh, fighting against the forces of impurity. And it, it makes the argument essentially that Jesus is not overturning purity laws that come down from the Torah. He is restoring people to states of purity. And he's doing this because of his marvelous power as the son of God, um, not because he uh, is abrogating these particular laws. And so it's very common to read Jesus' healing stories and purity stories and bring to them all these assumptions that um, Jews are these horrible people who exclude the suffering and the sick and the impure and think they're icky. And isn't it wonderful how Jesus is inclusive and restores people to community? Well, he does restore people to community, but by overcoming the impurity, not by setting aside those particular laws. And I just, I realized in in, in reading this book, how many, especially liberal Protestant sermons, I don't know, I guess I haven't heard that many conservative sermons in my life, but they just work without even realizing it on this backdrop of exclusionary Judaism and how wonderful and inclusive Jesus is. Um, so it, so like the, the so-called inclusivity gospel needs Jews to be the bad guy with their horrible, horrible Torah laws. So um, let's just stop that, everybody. Okay. <laughs> Go, let, I'll, I'll put the book in the show notes. Let's learn what purity and impurity really is and then stop blaming Jews for excluding people. And, and isn't it interesting that uh, the... I agree with what you said, but isn't it interesting that Jesus gives as a divine gift the purity which the purity laws otherwise demand of people? Uh, God commands purity, Jesus gives purity. Right. Yes. But the whole point is that God actually, or Jesus gives what God demands through the law. He does not overturn the law. It's not an antinomian yes. reading of purity laws. The law must the law must be fulfilled, but not by works, but by the gift of grace. Yeah, right, right. And the other thing, and I, I also found this completely fascinating in Luke's temptation story, the Satan quotes to Jesus from the Psalms, and Jesus rebuts him with Deuteronomy. Right. And that that just blew my mind because that is so against, again, the, the typical, well, you know, the Psalms and the prophets, they're on our side, but Torah, ugh, with all those laws, like you said, who'd want to get circumcised? Glad I'm a girl and don't have to ever ask that question. But um, <laughs> the fact that Jesus actually counters, you know, the, the poetic language of prayer in Psalms with, no, this is what the law of God requires. I am not going to violate it. And within Luke's gospel, at least, and and I I haven't done the comparative work with the other ones, there's no sign that Jesus during his earthly ministry actually consumes non-kosher food or has table fellowship that would break the the Torah requirements. It seems that Jesus is largely observant and that the problem that he is facing is not that Torah is awful, but that Satan is awful. And that people are trapped by impurity, not laws about impurity, and Jesus is there to get them out of that. So that would be very interesting that uh, 
at the distance of 50 or 60 years from the time of Jesus, Luke is actually locating the mission of Jesus within Judaism. Isn't it right that he omits from his source in Mark the story of the Syrophoenician, the Canaanite woman? Yes, this is actually one of the the strangest things that Luke does on one level because he follows Mark so closely and includes nearly all the material. But the biggest chunk that's left out is uh, Mark's story of the Syrophoenician woman. Matthew makes her a Canaanite woman. Luke just deletes the story entirely. And, you know, there have been conjectures, well, maybe he had a faulty copy of Mark. But my guess is, looking at the whole trajectory of Luke-Acts, is that it's too soon for Jesus to meet a Gentile in Luke's telling. He, because he has such a very precise um, historical arc of starting in the most Jewish possible setting of Zechariah and Elizabeth in the temple in Jerusalem, and then very gradually spreading outward, it's just too soon for Jesus to start doing ministry to Gentiles. I'm sure, I mean, my personal uh, biblical scholar conviction is that's why he had to leave that story out. Very interesting. You know, I had one more thought I wanted to add to the supersession question, Sarah. Uh, when I said supersessionist in what respect, I think one thing is very clear in Luke, and we have it from the beginning of the book of Acts, uh, when the disciples um, uh, uh, ask about um, uh, the restoration of the land of Israel. And uh, the answer that is given to them uh, is that this is not what the resurrection of Jesus is about. Um, and so... Oh, when will you, you, Lord, when will you restore the kingdom to Israel? That's what right. they ask him yes, when he's right. preparing to ascend into heaven. Right. And he says, uh, not for you to know, but in any case, it's a divine gift and not something in your power. So again, the gift of the land is not, you know, canceled or disqualified, but it's certainly taken out of human hands. It's not something that a zealot could achieve by the sword or the Pharisees could achieve by perfect obedience to the 613 commandments for four successive Sabbaths. Both uh, were schemes by which the, the, uh, the coming of the kingdom could be triggered. Uh, uh, and particularly after the catastrophic defeat uh, in, in the rebellion against Rome in 70, uh, uh, even normative Judaism uh, turns away from the idea that in its own power it can recapture the, uh, the land of Israel. Uh, that's almost uh, t totally reinforced after the second Jewish rebellion in the year 140, approximately under Bar Kokhba, uh, in which uh, the rabbis said, "That's it. No more. No more attempts uh, violently to restore the land of Israel. We have to wait for this as a gift from above." So, supersessionism. Uh, it's not just Christians who give up, uh, at least in, in terms of a, a human time frame and human power, uh, the, the land of Israel. Uh, it's also Jews in this period of time who are re recognizing that they have to live in diaspora 
until uh, God deems otherwise. Yeah, I think that that's very helpful. Uh, it does. It is true that over the course of the book of Acts, the interest in the land of Israel as part of the promise does fade from view. And again, this must reflect in the immediate aftermath of the Roman destruction of Jerusalem is trying to figure out like what it, it's so unclear. It's just it's too early for them to know one way or another, I think, whether it's lost for good. Because like you said, there's Bar Kokhba's rebellion in the next century. Um, they don't know how many uh, millennia are going to pass before there's a substantial Jewish population back in Palestine, though I think there always were some. It was never a complete depopulation of of Jews in the area, but certainly much restricted. And, and as we said, there are major Jewish population centers elsewhere. They're thriving elsewhere. There are other options, but I'm I'm sure that deciding to give up on the land must have been a, a painful realization to have to come to. Uh, but I, I would note, just as a little counterweight to that, uh, I read an excellent book by a Messianic Jewish theologian. Again, sorry, I forget the name, Mark Kinsner, maybe. But anyway, he he does point out that in the Book of Acts, there's always a circling back to Jerusalem. It ends in. It starts in Jerusalem and ends in Rome, but for all the other travels that take place, especially Paul's travels, there's always, again, a, a return to Jerusalem. So sort of signifying an, an ultimate hope for coming back to Jerusalem and a, a restored Jerusalem. Obviously, the events of Acts um, end long before the destruction of the temple. But I, I think I, I don't, you know, Dad, I'll just be honest. I don't know what to do with this. I've I've noticed more now when I'm reading um, like the Psalms, for instance, the, the longing for the land. And I would say that for myself, uh, honestly, as a Gentile Christian, the land was never that important. I know people say holy land. I visited there once myself. It was cool. I'm not sure I would say it was spiritually transformative for me. But I've always just sort of taken it for granted that, um, you know, Jesus is the third temple and he is a traveling temple who shows up in his Holy Supper among his um, congregations throughout the world. And I, I didn't have any, I've never had very strong piety about the land and getting to know uh, Jews and Judaism better has made me realize that is definitely a... Um, a Gentile Christian belief. So, but I don't know really where to put that. And of course, the enormous political complications surrounding Israel, whichever side you fall on, um, you know, I'm, I'm in favor of a state of Israel continuing to exist as a political unit. I, but I don't, I don't really know how to think about the land theologically. So I don't know if this is the place to get into that, but I just thought I would signal that this is a, an unsettled topic, very unsettled topic in my own Well, I, I, it's an important topic, and we should do an episode, I think we're, we're planning to, on um, a, different, uh, a different kind of an approach to the theology of the land uh, that I would advocate. Uh, Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Uh, I think that's the way in which the beatitude recon reconceptualizes the gift of the land, and in a sense, without losing its historical anchorage in the gift uh, of the land of Canaan, once given to the ancestors of the Jewish people, uh, turns that gift of land into a, um, a a rich and deep and historically anchored symbol of the restoration of the earth from its bondage to decay. 
to put it into an eschatological framework. Uh, and for me, that has a lot to do with the episode we'll do later this season on uh, regenerative agriculture and environmental theology. But that's getting off topic. Let's get back to Luke. Well, okay. But just to wrap up, though, I mean, it's very striking you refer to that beatitude because probably the more accurate uh, Jewish rather than Gentile reading would be, blessed are the meek for they shall inherit the land as in Haaretz, Israel, the land of Israel. And that's that's echoing Psalm 37, which is says essentially the same thing, blessed are the meek for they will inherit the land, but it means the land of Israel. And I, I guess for for us Gentile Christians, it's super easy to immediately universalize and eschatologize the land into the earth or the kingdom of heaven. Um, but that that isn't the, the substrate. So, all right. Well, okay. So uh, I think one more big issue to address before we get into the nitty gritty of Luke, which is, um, as I said, you know, Luke is obviously built on a foundation of Mark. The question is, why do Luke and Matthew have material in common that Mark doesn't, though Matthew and Luke both have material unique to them? So the longstanding theory has been Q from German Quelle, which means source. So there's the idea that there's this floating source mostly of, of sayings and parables of Jesus that... Um, somehow circulated after Mark and both Matthew and Luke heard or had written down and then made use of. Um, I would just like to say that I think Q realized early on he was a bad theologian and decided to give up and build cool gadgets for James Bond instead. <laughs> but <laughs> Sorry, I can't, I can never resist that joke when Q comes up. So dad, what do you think? Q, yes or no? Um, of course, Q is a is a hypothetical construct. We don't have a document called Q. It's a it's again a theoretical construct and its merit depends upon what it can explain. But I would agree with you that the the historical critics always looking for a way to uh, subvert or undermine, for example, Matthew and Luke. Uh, are always looking to discover in Q some more primitive source that really goes back to the historical Jesus or to the earliest Jesus movement. And if we could get our heads inside of what Q was all about, we would be listening to the very voice of Jesus without all the post-Jesus Christian filters that have been layered on thick and distort his memory. And I'll just, st I'll, I'll stop there. I have a s old friend from seminary. I, I don't think I want to mention his name, um, who wrote a book on Q. And his outrageous claim, to me outrageous claim, was that Q was actually the record made by spies sent from King Herod to figure out what was going on with Jesus and his movement. And this record of Jesus and his movement, written down by hostile spies, somehow survived <laughs> and got into circulation among early Christians. And I just think you can invent these kinds of rabbit holes and take deep dives into them from which you never emerge. 
wow, Dad, I didn't know you went to seminary with Dan Brown, author of The Da Vinci Code. That's so <laughs> cool. Why did you never tell me? Uh, uh, it, wasn't, just... I, it wasn't really Dan Brown. It was somebody else. <laughs> <laughs> Okay. Yes, that's wacky. Well, again, in my, uh, you know, very untrained um, as a scholar, but as longtime reader of the gospel literature, I just have to say, Mark clearly came first. Matthew clearly came next. And Luke knew both of them and wrote his own version, setting both of them straight as far as he can tell and adding his own material from his own community. It seems to me a much more plausible explanation that that was the the order and that you, inventing non-existent documents and conspiracy theories around them is um, fails the Occam's razor test, whereas uh, Luke, knowing both Mark and Matthew, passes with flying colors. Okay, let's go with that and get on to the meat and uh, potatoes of the Gospel of Luke. Okay, well, sorry, one last little thing is let's just note what else Luke leaves out that Mark includes. So the main one we already mentioned is the Syrophoenician woman. But there are a couple more that I think are interesting. Uh, Luke does not say that Jesus was unable to do miracles in Nazareth because of their unbelief, a rather shocking claim that Mark makes um, in his chapter 6, I think. Uh, Luke drops the Ephatha healing of the deaf man. He also drops Jesus' cry of dereliction, the, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me, uh, which Matthew retains uh, from Mark. He drops ransom language. This is interesting. You know, the, the only kind of so-called atonement theory we have in Mark is that the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Luke deletes that. And finally, Luke does not depict Jesus as an eschatological bridegroom, which is a trope um, used in both Mark and Matthew. Uh, Luke um, does have lots of banquets, but he doesn't ever make Jesus the bridegroom at an eschatological banquet. So I just tossed those out there. Any any thoughts particularly? I think, yeah, I think you see with Luke, especially in the depiction of the crucifixion, uh, you see a, a move away from the abject humiliation, the suffering of spiritual as well as physical ignominy, uh, depicted in the crucifixion of, G of Jesus by Mar Mark and Matthew, and omitting the cry of dereliction is part and parcel of that. What you see by contrast in Luke is a Jesus that's totally in charge, uh, totally in charge of his own crucifixion, and uh, who shows no sign of despair or suffering, but in fact uh, behaves like a royal king, uh, uh, on the cross, telling the penitent thief that today he will be with him in paradise, uh, uh, who sovereignly, like a high priest, intercedes, if this is authentic to original Luke, Father, forgive them, they know not what they do, uh, and finally ends his life in perfect equanimity. Uh, Father, into your hands I commend my spirit, and Jesus bowed his head and died. Uh, and then this is a trajectory, I think, which continues into the Gospel of John. We'll have to talk about uh, the relationship of Luke to John and uh, towards uh, at some other point. But um, I think that what Luke wants to show us is Jesus in his uh, true humanity as the uh, obedient Son of God, 
uh, is perfect in his submission to God's will in the serene confidence of filial faith. Yeah, that's that's good. And of course, faith is a, a huge theme of Luke that we will return to as we go along. Okay, so now let's now properly shift into um, the what is unique to the gospel of Luke. But I, I just want to set up a kind of like a not, not not a warning, but just flag the point that it's really significant that Luke and Matthew both build on Mark. Even though Luke says at the beginning he's correcting some, you know, issues in, in previous accounts, fundamentally it is the same story. Fundamentally it follows the same pattern. Fundamentally Luke is endorsing Mark's narrative about the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. He adds to it, but he does not significantly alter it. So though we're going to go on to talk about what's unique, what Luke... Um, adds to the story that is not present in his two predecessors. This should always be with the understanding that nevertheless, it is fundamentally the same story. And I think that's quite significant. I've, I've always been impressed by the fact that our canon retains four gospels that for all their differences are fundamentally the same story. Even John's story is fundamentally the same story. And that's, that is just presumed as the foundation for the distinctiveness of Luke's vision that we're going to talk about now. Good. Yeah, I think that's quite right. Yeah. Mark invents the genre and um, Matthew, Luke, and John uh, supplement without departing from the genre. Yes. It's sort of like starting with Haydn and then in his piano sonatas, but Beethoven is the one who really makes them fabulous. So, okay. I don't know if that was at all helpful. All right, so uh, let's start with the most um, unique and um, uh, unparalleled contribution probably of everything in Luke, which is the first two chapters, um, not just the Theophilus introduction, but first the conception of John and the meeting of Gabriel with Zechariah in the temple, who does not believe and is struck deaf mute, or just, I guess, mute, um, and Elizabeth conceiving, and then Mary, of course, having her meeting with Gabriel and believing and conceiving, and Mary and Elizabeth meeting each other, and then the birth of Jesus in Bethlehem, of which we have countless hymns, and the shepherds, and the angels. Dad, Right. <laughs> yeah, it's a really, again, I when this author that I mentioned at the beginning said the Gospel of Luke is beautiful. Uh, the first two chapters of Luke are beautiful. And I mean that in the strongly aesthetic sense of the word. Uh, if you get all hung up on questions of historicity here, I think you miss the beauty of the story, which has this uh, exquisite parallelism between Zechariah and Mary, disbelieving Zechariah, who struck dumb, Believing Mary, who comes out with these exquisite hymns of praise, uh, above all the Magnificat, uh, uh, about which Luther wrote a wonderful commentary. Um, and so there's well, Zach this... Zechariah also sings when he gets his voice back again, with it also a very beautiful hymn. But he has to wait a little longer to sing. Yeah, this. he has to wait, right. He, after his chastisement, he gets to sing. <laughs> Right, the nunc dimittis, Lord, now let your servant go in peace. No, 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 that's that's Simeon. Um, that's Simeon. Uh, oh, yeah, that's Zechariah, right. <laughs> Zechariah sings, blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel. Yes, right. Yes, I'm sorry. Yes, you're absolutely but there, right. But I think that's the point. There are so many songs in the first two chapters. It's, it's an incredibly poetic uh, singing of praises. 
Right, and and so the real point of the story of the birth of Jesus uh, is to uh, prompt us to praise, to prompt us to doxology, to prompt us to join our voices uh, to the glorious sung by the angelic hosts in the night sky around Bethlehem. And that's, you know, hark the herald angels sing. <laughs> uh, glory, you're right, all that, you know. And uh, the, what, a, what a wonderful way, uh, literarily, to introduce the following story of Jesus, uh, that uh, uh, this story is unfolding, uh, God the Creator in his unique once-and-for-all act of uh, human salvation uh, by the sending uh, of his Son uh, through the ministry of the Holy Spirit. And this, as a paradigm, happens in the birth of Jesus in order that it be a paradigm for the new birth of every believer in Christ, as we'll talk about a little bit later. Yeah, you know, even though it's it's easy to be kind of jaded and cynical about what Christmas has become, the fact is this is just a great story and it's just has captivated human imagination. You know, even in Japan, which knows absolutely nothing about the source of Christmas, they're just crazy about Christmas here and the lights and they have Santas and snowmen. They don't have babies in mangers, but there's something just so incredibly powerful. And, you know, so what? We located in December, so it's cold and snowy and so lights this time of year when it's darker are a big deal. I, I think, you know, just uh, it's it's good um, for uh, pious Christians to relax the cynicism sometimes and just say there's a reason why even, uh, even unbelievers and non-Christians love this holiday built on this story because it is just a genuinely wonderful, wonderful story, especially considering how much hard stuff is coming up ahead in Jesus' life. So now, Dad, transitioning from from your eloquent words there about the the wonderful first two chapters, I'm going to put you on the spot. Um, you have expressed thoughts about the virgin birth, which maybe would be shocking to people. So why don't you uh, spend some time on that one, and we will we will uh, dialogue about it. Yeah, you're putting me on the spot, right? Yeah. I mean, it's in print, Dad. You can't go back from it now, but go ahead. Try it Try it spontaneously <laughs> yeah, by voice here. But, you know, let me add, this is not a dodge. This is simply true. Uh, what I've written about this has mostly to do with the Gospel of Matthew rather than the Gospel of Luke. And so I think I can punt until next year when we do episodes <laughs> on the Gospel of Matthew. Uh, but what I would like to say very briefly is something that you've really emphasized already, that the nativity stories, whether Luke's or Matthew's, including the motif of the virginity of Mary uh, and the conception by the power of the Holy Spirit, uh, strongly locate the, um, uh, the origins of the Jesus event in, in the legacy of Israel in Judaism. Uh, I think that's probably the most important thing to be said about this. Now, this has been obscured because of uh, uh, arguments about the translation of the Hebrew uh, word alma, which means young woman, uh, and translating that into Greek uh, uh, as virgin 
uh, I'm going by memory. Is that Parthenos, something like that? Yeah, like the Parthenon in Athens, yeah, right? Right, Parthenos, um, and and then polemics between the rabbis and and the inquisitors, uh, uh, whether this was a correct translation or not, and did Matthew and Luke get get Isaiah seven wrong when they translated, or the Septuagint get it wrong when it translated Alma? As as young uh, as virgin and so forth, I think all of that uh, is uh, uh, really a kind of intense family quarrel, because what is true is that the messianic expectations of a royal birth that would fulfill the promises once made to David and his line are what Anna. It's it's the messianic expectation. Uh, that uh, uh, is saturating the whole narrative, uh, whether Matthew's or Luke's, of the birth of Jesus. And the virginity motif is a part of that. It indicates a wonder of God, uh, just like the resurrection at the end of Jesus' story indicates a wonder of God. Uh, And it is to say that the origin of Jesus, like the conclusion of his earthly existence are both to be understood as unique acts and sovereign acts of God in his creative and redeeming love. And I think that's all I want to say about that right now. (laughs) Okay. Well, here, I I have two things to say about this this set of stories, and you, you can tell me what you think. The first is that, for whatever reason, I have a less difficulty believing the resurrection than I do Jesus taking his flesh from only a woman and not a woman and a man, and that is whatever reason my my science allows for resurrections but not for a single strand dna in jesus <laughs> so there there if we are going to take the strong assurance of creeds as well as scripture that jesus was true man he needs a complete dna strand um and i don't know how the holy spirit supplies that or where from for all that i don't have a, a strong horse in the race of getting rid of the virgin birth um i know there are some people who are more troubled by this than I am. I I don't seem to have a previous generation's anxiety about everything adding up scientifically or historically. But one thing I did read in the commentary I I, um, studied in preparation for this uh, was uh, an intriguing notion that, you know, I don't know what its validity, but I'll just say it, which is that it is a well-established trope of Greco-Roman literature to talk about divine paternity. And this was both like in, in tales of gods and heroes as well as, you know, Caesars. And the idea is basically in those that there is a human mother and a divine father, but the way the conception happens is that the god actually has literal sexual intercourse with the human woman, and that's how it comes about. And so the suggestion here was that what Luke does is he's presuming this, but twisting it by not having the Lord God of Israel have sex with Mary, which of course would offend Jews, Muslims, as well as Christians, but that it is the Holy Spirit's power that comes upon a normal human conception between the engaged or married Mary and Joseph. And so it's more like a double paternity of both Joseph and God Almighty. And that, but but for the Greco-Roman audience, that distinction from the usual, you know, 
lascivious Roman and Greek god way of getting a human woman pregnant is startlingly different. And that is actually what sets apart Jesus' divine paternity um, more than a virgin birth that has no male of any kind involved at all. Any thoughts about that? Yeah, that's that's interesting. And that account would not explain, however, the story in Matthew, correct? Because crucial to the story in Matthew is Joseph's discovery of the pregnancy and decision quietly to put Mary away as uh, unfaithful, as an adulteress. Um, So that story wouldn't work to explain Matthew's nativity story. That no, it's, it's not trying to. It's only trying to explain Luke's. And, you know, Luke and Matthew, they both talk about a virgin birth, but in rather different ways and with rather different details. So. I think so. And that would really take us down into the weeds. Uh, but let, let me just finish then with this thought. Is it would be interesting if you're right that there is no such thing as Q and that Luke is actually rewriting uh, Matthew's material that we uh, uh, classify as Q, uh, then Matthew might, uh, Luke might also be rewriting uh, Matthew's nativity story. Uh, it would seem to make sense there uh, for, for reasons along the lines that you suggest. Um, I don't know. Uh, I'm reluctant to, to discuss this much further, Sarah, because we would really have to get down uh, into the subtle differences between Matthew and Luke's account of the virgin birth. Uh, and that would be an entire podcast in itself. Yeah. Well, and also it begs the question of where did Matthew get the virgin birth story from? So, well, maybe next year when we do Matthew, we'll return to this then. The other thing that I, I would just like to observe that has been important for me personally in my own life is that in, in Luke's story of the conception of John by Elizabeth and Zechariah, the reason why Zechariah is criticized so sharply is because there are miracles around infertility throughout the Old Testament. Zechariah had plenty of precedents to know that God was capable of this and could solve the problem. You know, Abraham and Sarah being the most famous precedent for that. However, the healing of the infertility of Zechariah and Elizabeth is the last such a miracle in the New Testament. There are no more accounts of childless couples being given children thereafter. And the contrast with Mary, of course, is that there is no previous account of a virgin conceiving and um, having a child. So Mary's question to the angel, challenging question, how can this be since I am a virgin is legit in a way that Zechariah's question, but we're old, is not legitimate. But uh, I guess what is was uh, what I like to say is moving to me about this story is that with the coming of of Christ, there is a, a big, very conscious transition towards a new construal of family. And you see this throughout Luke's gospel. It's in the awkward scene where uh, Jesus sort of rejects his mother and brothers who are coming to take him away because he seems to be getting a a little crazy. And uh, you see it when Jesus blesses the barren on the way to Jerusalem, the women who are wailing after him. And he says, you know, blessed are the barren because they will be better prepared for the end times when they come. Uh, Paul talks about the adoption motif and about the ecclesiastical family. And the the reason 
I find this touching is because many years ago, my husband and I discovered that we were not going to conceive children the fun way, uh, didn't was not going to succeed <laughs> in producing a baby. So we are adoptive parents, not biological parents of our son. And, you know, it was shattering because, of course, you know, you assume that you'll be able to pass on your uh, your own genetic material to the next generation. And the comfort I found was I was you know, struggling with this and saying, look, you know, throughout the Old Testament, Jesus or God heals infertility. And there are all these couples who are given children. Why not us? And uh, and then, you know, and uh, um, I was, you know, reading my Bible, trying to find comfort. And then I just came across this staggering line from Jesus, blessed are the barren. And it was like he was speaking to me. And that's what kind of shifted my attention to see the Old Testament also has significant adoption stories like Moses and little Samuel. And um, it, it, in a sense, uh, Jesus even is adopted by Joseph. If you if you do take the more the the Matthew line and possibly the Luke line, that Joseph is not the biological father of Jesus, but the adoptive father of Jesus, and that in fact Jesus inherits the Davidic line through his adoptive father. Joseph, right. not through his biological mother, Mary. It just, it did a, a very profound shift of orientation for me. And, um, you know, it is a grief not to be able to conceive, but um, as you know, you, you know your grandson, <laughs> we, uh, as, as Andrew and I like to say now, he, he's better than anyone we could have made ourselves, and we are very grateful <laughs> to be. Yeah, amen to that, Sarah. But it is, I, I think it's fair to say it's it's an apocalyptic blessing. You know, it's a sign of a different kind of human relatedness. It It isn't under normal circumstances right and good for children not to be raised by their biological parents. But the world is hard and things go wrong. And sometimes that's the way it has to happen. And uh, so I, I am now grateful to be part of this apocalyptic blessing, even though I wasn't at first. And Luke helped me through it. Well, wonderful to hear that. <laughs> yes, I, I, of course, I know the story, uh, but I'm glad that our, our listeners get to hear that story from you, Sarah. All right. Well, maybe that's a good stopping point for this kind of building up, you know, kind of getting the background of Luke. And in our next episode, then we can go into the, the details of Luke's unique material. How does that sound to you? Okay, that sounds good to me. Let's uh, continue next time with another full discussion of the content and theology of the gospel of luke okay so next time on the show more luke thanks for listening to the queen of the sciences podcast for show notes and more visit our website queenofthesciences.com to find out more about what we do visit sarahhenlickywilson.com and paulhenlicky.com finally please leave us a review on itunes and tell a friend about the show